HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Vertera Dinnerware. Learn more at vertera.com. That's V-E-R-T-E-R-R-A dot com. This week's Meet and 3 is all about food branding and identity in 2020. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Everybody has some Goya product in their pantry, so... Obviously, the biggest kind of loss from all of this is the students really working with a brand that they're very comfortable with, that they're very familiar with. I'll be honest, I was completely floored. I was very surprised that a company, especially in the current climate, would backtrack out of a commitment to address issues of racism. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. On today's show, I welcome Lucas Sin, Eater Young Guns Class of 2019 in Forbes 30 Under 30, and the chef partner in Jinza Kitchen. Lucas opened his first restaurant when he was 16 in an abandoned newspaper factory in his hometown of Hong Kong with the help of friends and support of his family. While obtaining a degree in the Cognitive Science and English departments at Yale, he also hosted a pop-up out of his dorm room and cooked at multiple restaurants in New Haven. In the Yale Entrepreneurial Institute, he met his future Jinza Kitchen business partners, and there they incubated the concept. In 2015, Jinza Kitchen opened in New Haven and now has three additional locations in New York City. The company also has a new concept called Nice Day, which was born out of the pandemic and is focused on honoring classic American Chinese dishes. Nice Day is currently incubating inside of a Jinza location, while they plan to launch its own brick-and-mortar location soon. In this episode, we talk about pop-ups, not knowing what goes into opening a restaurant, the rapid growth of Jinza Kitchen as a brand, and the past, present, and future of American Chinese food. Lucas, good morning. Good morning, Eli. Where are you at right now? I'm in my apartment. Uh, I live in Manhattan, a couple blocks away from one of my restaurants on Bleecker Street. And you are, the cor- of course, the chef of Jinza. Mm-hmm. And uh, tell me a little bit about the spots. Are there four right now? Are, yeah. are all four operating during COVID? Uh, there are four and a half, basically. Um, the mm-hmm. half is a uh, ghost kitchen, 
um, so it's delivery only. Um, but yeah, we have uh, three brick and mortar locations here in New York City and one in New Haven, Connecticut. All of them are operational. Did it start in New Haven? Why the New Haven location uh, in addition to the three Manhattan locations, yeah. the three New York locations? Yeah, New Haven was our first baby. It was our first restaurant. Um, and we opened there because um, the founding group of us met in New Haven. Uh, most of us went to Yale. Uh, the co-founders were in forestry school and in the art school uh, doing the graduate programs. Um, and I was doing my undergrad. Uh, and we had met on campus and got to talking and thinking about this idea and decided to go for it and built our first location in New Haven, like a block away from campus. And none of you were in business school, right? So you no. were all doing other either graduate or undergraduate the relevant things, tracks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> things getting, getting degrees, which uh, may have been applicable upon graduation, but not necessarily directly correlated to opening up a uh, sort of a upscale fast casual restaurant. Right. I suppose more of, you know, more of Junza was built more on a, a need for us to tell a story and help evolve and write this narrative of Chinese immigrants in the U.S. Uh, than it was. It was more, it was more, um, how do I put this? It was more sort of spurred on by this need to tell a Chinese, Im a Chinese immigration story and a, a more involved story about Chinese food than it was um, sort of like a professional drive. Um, you know, uh, to, to, for, I can speak for myself at the very least. Um, I was, I've always been very, very interested in food. Um, and it was just so, I was just so lucky to go to a school where I was able to engage with ideas in food while also um, pursuing a degree in cognitive science. I wrote my um, senior thesis on time travel, on mental time travel. Um, I spent a lot of time translating modern Chinese poetry, um, took a lot of Japanese, uh, nothing to do with what I'm doing today. Um, but what, during all of this, I was running pop-ups out of my dorm room. Um, and I think that was how I really got um, entrenched in this culinary world sort of like earlier on. So you became kind of uh, enamored with the idea of what a restaurant could be based on how it was operating in your dorm room as a pop-up? Right. Sort of, yeah. I think it, it might be worth dialing back a little, actually back to um, secondary school, to high school. Um, so I'm from Hong Kong. I uh, grew up there and... Uh, I was 16 years old when we opened our first little restaurant uh, in the abandoned newspaper factory. And so this is a newspaper factory that was sort of like repurposed um, after the newspaper moved. And it had all these little sort of like cells or, or units inside. And people would snap up these units and repurpose them for whatever they were using it for. And so we knew somebody who had a wine cellar. Um, that was attached to basically a semi-professional kitchen. And uh, we went in there and we said, can we use a space? Let's start running uh, a restaurant or a private kitchen, as we used to call it, a private kitchen out of here. Um, and we would serve 13 courses of Hong Kong-inspired cuisine. Me and my friends, I'd teach people how to hold three plates at once and, and, and pretend like you know what you're talking about when you're talking about wine and uh, come up with new menus every day and stuff. And we do this for our summers. Um, and that was sooner or later, it kind of, well, 
put it this way, it was at the end of the day, it was us taking ourselves way too seriously and playing restaurant as children. Um, but that sort of sentiment continued as uh, we were in college. And um, I joined up with a couple of new friends and we kept doing a similar type of thing um, in school. So uh, as a result, I think my early years, sort of my first foray into uh, the culinary world would have been through this world of pop-ups. This Hong Kong pop-up that you did when you started it when you were 16, did you sell tickets? Who was coming? Friends? Family? Was it, did it gain any publicity or traction? Were, were like regular people yeah. making reservations? Yeah. First of all, it was in, in, entirely illegal. Um, <laughs> second of all, that it makes was it, like, that makes it that much more. I know it was so cool because like, well, we just, the, the conversation went at, like, I was in the car with my dad and he's like, Hey, you got a couple summers left before you go off to school. Most likely you're going to go to school in the U S or the UK or Australia or whatever. Um, what are you going to do with the rest of your summers here in Hong Kong? And we're just talking and he said, you like food, don't you? And I said, yeah, I think I like food. And so why don't you just open a restaurant? And I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> and you just start to, you, I mean, you start to like hack it together, right? You bootstrap, you sandbag, you do whatever. You're like, you're 16. So you're like, hey, uh, I think we need bowls. So you go to the street in Hong Kong that sells bowls and you buy bowls. You're like, hey, I need to develop a menu. So you just start going to night market. You start like, we traveled a little and like, just like ask people, how do you cook this? You know, just watch people cook all day. Just like start learning it little by little. Watched a lot of Jamie Oliver. Um, just like, just consume as much as information as you can. And just like start faking, faking it, you know. Um, and uh, the people who were coming were all kind of coming by word of mouth. Um, it was like uh, our teachers, our, our parents, um, uh, other like friends of friends and stuff. And it was pretty cool. We set up this little shuttle system. And uh, people would get picked up at a random location and they'd be shuttled off to this sort of like secret newspaper factory where we would lead them up into this room and then they'd sit inside a wine cellar and then uh, we would serve them these like 13 courses. And I guess what was kind of like weird about these private kitchens because, well, private kitchens are really were quite common in Hong Kong. Um, you can imagine high rents. So a lot of really creative chefs want to cook in basically apartments um, without these, uh, without licenses or anything um, in order to uh, uh, stay creative, but also um, keep that rent low. And so um, what was interesting about this sort of like creative space in all these different types of private kitchens in Hong Kong, including our own, was that a lot of the time was really sort of like narrative driven. Like the chef would come to your table and tell you, hey, this is what I was thinking when I was putting this together. Here's the inspiration. And I think that type of like engagement with the customer and saying that, hey, this food is more than what's delicious. It's, it also tells a story. I think it was really, really important to how I came around to thinking about food. It's such a difficult business, as we both know now, now that we're truly doing it professionally as adults, but as a 16-year-old, especially when you're saying, that you don't know anything and that you really were just kind of uh, figuring out as you go, there could have been a wide variety of entrepreneurial business opportunities that you could have taken over the summer. You could have started a, a clothing brand. You could have interned at, a, at another real company. So why the restaurant? Like if you were <laughs> just kind of just vaguely into food, how in the world did you say to yourself, let me do what is essentially the hardest business to, to start? And then you did it with your friends as a 16-year-old. 
Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. First thing is that we didn't know how hard it was going to be. <laughs> Second of all, um, I think I would I was probably underselling the fact that I was a little into food. I was obsessed with food. Um, my whole family was. I feel like most people in Hong Kong are. Um, my uh, usually when I you know do interviews like this, people what people want me to say is that my grandmother was a cook and she was a cook, um, but she hated it. And she made it clear to me that I should not become a cook uh, when gotcha. I grew up. Um, but she was, you know, cooking the mahjong parlor. Um, but uh, she, she did have an, have an affinity for food, right? Um, we ate three times a day. My dad is honestly, in my opinion, the best home cook of all time. Uh, he could always make food out of nothing. And, you know, we would spend a lot of our weekends sort of like prowling Hong Kong and um, uh, and traveling and trying to look for new flavors and that sort of thing. And I think what my parents had sort of like indoctrinated me early on is that if you eat three times a day, it, why not think about the food that you're eating, like in a deep way? How is it made? Where does it come from? Um, why do I like something? Why don't I like something? What's the difference between the noodles, the bowl of noodles at this restaurant instead of the other restaurant? And just like being a little bit more curious about the food, I think um, developed that that's how the sort of like interest in food grew. Um, but what really hooked me was um, kitchen culture. I think um, I was really excited to be a part of um, a restaurant where everyone was just working so hard, where uh, diligence and uh, uh, hard work really paid off where there was creativity, but there was also camaraderie. Um, I tried to spend uh, every summer and every winter I did, basically working in kitchens. Um, I was on call for a lot of like restaurants in New Haven and, you know, chefs would text me in English class when I was in university and say, Hey, I need you to come work service today after class. I was like, yeah, I'll come and, and just help out or I'll wash the dishes. Um, I started um, cooking in Hong Kong um, over a couple of summers just to get a little bit more professional experience so that I could go into other kitchens and then started working for some of these uh, private kitchens that I mentioned earlier. Um, eventually I, had started um, cooking through Japan. Um, my first summer was spent um, learning the Japanese language in Japan and cooking with Japanese grandmothers to learn home cooking. I spent another summer backpacking through Japan, just cooking at izakayas, which are kind of like gastro pub kind of um, uh, 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 bars um, with little like snacks type of thing, junk food. Um, and then I spent my uh, another summer cooking at Kikunoi Honten, which is a three-star Michelin um, world's 50 best uh, kaiseki place in Kyoto that was really, really quite intense. Um, but kind of uh, just spending every weekend, every summer, every time I, every chance I got in a professional kitchen and like loving every moment of it just because um, it's such a unique uh, like assembly of people, you know. Um, it's so cool when everyone's in sync and the restaurant works and everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, I just really enjoyed that culture and I think that's what kind of convinced me that um, cooking was what I wanted to do probably for the rest of my life. Was there an expectation either from your parents or from yourself that you would, no matter what you planned on doing in the culinary world, that you would go to a university and complete schooling? Or were you kind of hedging your bets that the food thing might not work out? So you still went to a four-year university? Um, I think uh, I was both my parents and myself were motivated to um, put me through school. I don't know if that's how I put it, but um, both my mom and my dad and myself were very excited that I was going to school um, uh, for the full four years. Um, I, on top of this, um, perhaps by 
um, the way I speak, you can already tell I'm a massive nerd. <laughs> I love, I loved school. I've always loved school and um, had a lot of um, interest that I want to investigate. Um, so going to a liberal arts for your college where I had the privilege of being able to read and, and learn things that I normally wouldn't, I think um, was a given. And I certainly was going to um, go through um, university. It almost feels like the university thing may or may not have worked out, which is why I'm in food now. What, why do you say that it didn't work out? <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm not a cognitive scientist. I don't work for a publishing firm. I, um, I'm not in, I don't work for a bank. I'm not in a management consultancy. Um, all those things that all of my uh, friends in uh, college are doing right now. Um, so I suppose, uh, uh, I suppose that's, that's sort of what I'm you had earlier said that there was uh, sort of an expectation from, from your father that you were going to go to school in either the UK or Australia or the United States. Uh, you didn't say that you would maybe stay in Hong Kong. So was the plan always that you would uh, leave Hong Kong and travel overseas and, and make a life somewhere else? Or was that more based on where you chose college and then you stayed? Uh, I think so. Um, well, it, so actually, you're right. It was based on uh, where I was going to school. But um, the school I went to was an international school in Hong Kong. So most of us, most of us, and by most, probably about 80 to 90% of us uh, ended up going to school abroad, either in the U.S. or the U.K. And so you come to New Haven. Had you spent a lot of time, any time in the United States prior to moving to New I think Haven? I have done like one or two summer programs, maybe. Um, in, in high schools and stuff. But uh, actually, you know what? I've, to I've totally forgotten this. I lived in California for a while. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, so I was, I was born in Canada. And then I think when I was three or four, moved to California for a year or two before going okay. back to Hong Kong. So you wouldn't um, have remembered it really. But. Uh, so I, I, I remember some of it. I remember school lunch. Um, I remember eating pizza out of uh, styrofoam boxes. Um, uh, and very little else. Um, <laughs> um, perhaps when I was three or four, I developed an immense love for Chinese American food, which um, I still love today. Uh, but yeah, otherwise, um, I don't really remember it, no. Can we talk a little bit about the distinction between Chinese American food and, uh, and what the maybe the the opposite of that would be if that is like Hong Kong street food or if you could just uh, mm -hmm. clarify a little bit if I'm totally way off base. Uh, what what are some of the main differentials that either people get confused about or just don't understand? Um, yeah, so 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 you so most of most Americans know Chinese food as um, General Tso's chicken and sesame chicken. Uh, lo mein, like dishes like that, right? Um, that's probably the Chinese food most people this generation grew up eating. And that uh, Chinese-American food, in my opinion, is a regional type of Chinese cuisine. Um, when people say Chinese food to me, it's kind of like when, when people say European food. Uh, there are 50-something provinces, 20-something ethnic minorities, uh, at least 4,000 years of culinary history, um, a huge amount of documentation and um, courts and aristocrats and rich people like throughout a lot of this time, which is to say that cuisine really, really developed, right? The history of Chinese cuisine is massive. 
And um, on one hand, yes, it is a little disappointing that most Americans unfortunately only know about this one one regional Chinese cuisine, this one Chinese American cuisine, when there's so so much else out there. But um, a lot of people who are engaged or know about this conversation, unfortunately, and to me even more disappointingly, tend to characterize Chinese food in America, American Chinese food, as uh, inauthentic. You know, it's it's not real, um, which to me is absolutely ridiculous because it absolutely is real. Um, there are forty six thousand Chinese rest, something like forty six thousand Chinese restaurants in the U.S. before COVID, at the very least, um, and all of them are staffed by people um, with families, many of which came to this country to build these Chinese American restaurants. If they've built this huge, massive uh, network within the diaspora that's bigger than Burger King's, McDonald's, and and KFC's combined, then you must, you can only imagine sort of how real this cuisine is. Um, And so I think I'm really interested in honoring that sort of uh, uh, American Chinese food as a predecessor to a lot of other regional types of Chinese food that have started to trickle into the U.S., um, like Sichuanese cuisine, Hunanese cuisine, um, uh, renewals of Cantonese cooking and stuff. but that's really important to like sort of understand this like historical context, right? Um, the, the great news is that um, the type of people who come to the U.S. from China are slightly different than they were before, which is to say that um, it's a little bit more diverse. There are more people coming from places that aren't just um, Hong Kong and southern China, um, which means that they bring other styles of cuisine with them, uh, such as, you know, this massive craze in uh, places like California and New York for spicy Sichuan cooking. Um, there's more like Yunnanese cooking that's coming up, Hunanese cooking. People are exploring the relationships between Chinese Korean food or Chinese Japanese food. And there are these like cool cultural crossovers. So it, the, the, the landscape, the dining landscape for Chinese cuisine is getting more and more colorful, um, which is great as well. Um, at Junzi, we, because it is a fast casual and accessibility is important, we sort of focus on home-style Chinese cooking, um, which for a lot of the time is um, kind of vegetable-forward, um, uh, relatively light, um, you-can-have-it-every-day type of things. Um, we also actually just launched a new uh, sister brand called Nice Day Chinese, which is an investigation into the American Chinese side of things, but we can talk about that a little later. Yeah, definitely. I I do want to also ask just a follow-up about the menu, which is Mm -hmm. that, so you've highlighted that there are so many provinces, there's so many different styles and varieties of cuisine that just kind of blanket calling them Chinese food uh, maybe doesn't do justice to all the amazing uh, varieties. So I'm wondering from a menu conceptualization standpoint, is it exciting? Is it daunting to have all of this uh, access to all of these potential recipes and flavors and dishes when you're trying to distill that down into a fast, casual menu? Um, What an awesome question. And I love that I get to talk with chefs about this um, and to talk to you about this because it's a very, it's a very chefy question, right? Um, uh, You have so much available to you. Like what do you choose to use? I think um, a lot of the times, well, I think in the fast casual world um, uh, and in this sort of like uh, fast casual or quick service, um, the the customer is really quite important and oftentimes more important than uh, 
the chef. Um, and so it, in this case, um, we need to make food that um, people can connect with and are able to uh, understand. Um, that absolutely doesn't mean we need to pander to either the chef's creative drives or pander to the customer's what people might think of customers kind of more basic, unsophisticated wants. Um, it's about understanding what a customer wants and uh, seeing how uh, that can be, uh, how the Chinese food that we have in front of us can be translated. Now, the type of cuisine we settled for um, is uh, the type of food that almost uh, is ubiquitous despite which region of China you might be in. Um, this is the tomato and egg stir fry. Uh, this is, you know... Um, uh, the, the cured cucumbers, uh, the lion's head meatballs, um, beef and peppers and type of thing. Um, the way perhaps, I'm trying to think of a good analogy here, but perhaps the way we think, we, we don't really think of um, uh, hamburgers as German anymore. They're just somehow American, um, perhaps is a, is a good analogy. But um, there are certain dishes that just everyone in China makes no matter what region you're in. And so those dishes, I think, um, uh, first of all, over history, have proved that they are um, that people enjoy them. Uh, and second of all, um, it, it, it's less; it's a lower barrier of entry for people to understand. Um, if people came up to us and we said, "Hey, we have this highly regional um, Yunnanese type of mushroom dumpling um, that is also that served with uh, yogurt or whatever," um, people would say, "Hey, wait, wait a minute." Um, there's a lot of steps to understand before I can order this dish. Whereas in fast casual, you don't have that luxury. So you want to keep things a little bit more simple. Um, so simplicity of understanding is really important. Um, at Junzi, we like to think of this idea as a certain bandwidth of communication, which is to say some people have, uh, well, when people come into a restaurant, they have a certain amount of information that they can process right? Depending on how much time they're inside of the restaurant. We don't want to overload them with too much stuff. Um, we want to communicate. It's from fast casual, you have maybe between one and five minutes of your customer's time. So in that time, you want to get to them um, and you want them to tell you what they want to eat, but you also want to make sure that they're not overloaded or stressed out or overburdened by the amount of information you're giving them. So in this case, we have to um, kind of like uh, hold back on some of that uh, narrative and storytelling about what specific regions um, we're cooking from. Often when a business is born out of, uh, in someone's mind, it can be born out of either uh, a need to fill a void or it can be born out of a desire to create that business. Uh, <laughs> and when those overlap, that's a wonderful thing. I'm wondering when you were in New Haven and you were speaking with your friends and, and later your partners, did you think to yourself, this needs to be here? Or did you think, I really want this to be here? Or was it both? Um, I think it starts with a want and then it develops into a need. So uh, uh, to be clear, my, my co-founders, um, uh, Yong and Wanting, uh, were, had been thinking about this since, I believe it was like 2013 or 2014. Um, while they were still in, in school. And it was, a, it was a want in the beginning. They had wanted food to eat on a regular basis that reflected who they were and their desires, right? Like 
uh, in particular, it was noodles and bings. So bings are these sort of like flat, um, they're basically unyeasted flat rolls, right? But, but also it's a generic term for anything that's basically circular or round. So in, in China, you would call pizza a pizza bing. Um, scallion pancakes or scallion bing, for example. Um, but anyway, there was this craving for northern Chinese bings and for noodles that were tossed in sauce instead of served in soup. Um, that's kind of the craving that they had in the beginning. And that's almost certainly a want. But the more you talk about it, the more you talk about operationalizing this business, the more you talk about um, uh, developing this business into a brand, you realize that it actually really is a need that we've identified that uh, uh, in the US, there is a need for new life in the Chinese food sort of space, so to speak. Um, and so we developed Junzi into almost more of a startup company than it is really just a series of restaurants. Uh, it's a startup company that, that addresses specifically this issue, this need that we think um, Americans have um, for uh, a more sort of like diverse and inclusive and, and colorful understanding of what Chinese food should be and can be. And so that's why we have so many sort of like different projects going on at Junzi beyond the fast casual. The fast casual is kind of the bedrock, is kind of the foundation. And then on top of that, there's there's distance dining, there, which is kind of like a delivered uh, uh, three-course tasting kind of narrative type of chef experience. Um, there's Instagram Live. There's Nice Day Chinese for Chinese, American Chinese food. Um, and it's so on and so forth. And, and we've been dabbling in all these different types of projects, different corners of the food industry to see how they can address this core need of, you know, how do we further Chinese food um, in the U.S.? Do you see all of those different segments of the business as standalone entities that perhaps one of them grows and really extends far beyond the other aspects of the business? Do you see them all growing in tandem? Are they symbiotic and yeah. require each other to exist? Yeah. Um, I, I certainly think of them as growing in tandem and, and, and symbiotic. They need each other. Um, and oftentimes, if you look at your sheets, right, um, certain brands might bring in a lot more revenue than other brands. Um, certain businesses may do a lot better than others. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're not working together. Um, an analogy is uh, kind of um, sort of Building Chinese food in the U.S. is kind of like building a house, right? You need the foundation, you need a roof, and then you need everything else in between. Um, the roof is kind of, the foundation might be fast casual. You know, on Monday, you might have sweet green. On Tuesday, you might have chipotle. On Wednesday, it would be good to have Junzi, to have Chinese fast casual. Why not? Um, the upper limit is when people who are sort of like dedicated to investigating more about Chinese food, right? Foodies, for example, people who are interested in food history might say, I'd really like some more um, communication with the chef and I want to see creative cooking um, in interesting contexts. And then that might be distance dining or chef study or whatnot. Um, in between, um, in the future, I can imagine that um, we would want to move into pro uh, like areas like um, uh, agriculture and say that, hey, we do need some, we need to be growing our own vegetables in order to really further what people think about Chinese food. For example, right, um, speaking very sort of ambitiously, but I think all of these things must grow in, in, in concert with each other so that um, we have multiple touch points for uh, potential new customers and for returning customers, but also we can grow a little bit of an ecosystem um, where uh, people can come to us uh, as, an, as a, a growing uh, authority on Chinese cooking. I definitely want to talk about distance dining, and so we will get there, but I want to jump back a little bit to mm -hmm. New Haven. Uh, 
you and a couple of your friends have yeah. this idea. Uh, you're still going to school full time, and it seems like you're also cooking full time. Whenever these guys call you and say, "Pick up a shift here and there," <laughs> yeah. so you've made yourself even busier than you could have already possibly been uh, while trying to finish up school and and, and get in that Ivy League location uh, at education uh, finished up. So when you're looking for a location. Do you go out and try to fundraise? Did you go to your family? Did you go to other students? How did that process unfold of opening up a location in New Haven? I wasn't the person sort of uh, in charge of fundraising. The the fundraising master and the sort of uh, financials guy is Yong, our CEO. Um, and in the early uh, in the early stages, we structured ourselves very much like a startup. Um, and by that, I meant we, uh, we went through a program that was then called the Yale Entrepreneurial Institute, where uh, mentors, business mentors would coach you through how to build a startup. And that honestly, for a couple of months is about running a business model and pitching to people. And I think in a very short amount of time, Yong and Wanting and the other co-founders that came before I joined the team um, really worked hard to learn how to do those things. So they pitched everyone from their parents um, to people that our, our business mentors know and friends of friends and whatnot. And I think um, mustered enough money to build our first restaurant in uh, New Haven, which uh, upon reflection was a lot cheaper than um, op- than, than opening a, than if we were to open a first restaurant in New York. Um, the good news is that um, New Haven still to this day is one of my favorite cities I've ever cooked in. Um, it's immensely uh, collaborative. Uh, it is, in my opinion, one of those like perfect small cities. The food scene is incredible. Um, the pizza obviously is the best in the world, um, and everyone just like knows everybody and is very and it's a very supportive community. On top of the fact that um, you know this is a business that was built sort of through Yale. We both have a Yale connection and a city connection, which I think was important to us early on. Um, but uh, on the other hand, I think a, a sort of wise decision for us, because at the end of the day, I was 21 years old when we, or 22 years old when we opened the first Junza. None of us really had enough restaurant experience um, or even experience in the food industry at large. So kind of trialing it and uh, opening a first location in New Haven allowed us to um, practice uh, kind of like practice restaurant until um, we moved to uh, move down to New York and open our first location by Columbia a year later. We're going to take a quick break. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Vertera. Impressively versatile, stylishly sustainable, environmentally disposable dinnerware from Fallen Leaves. Vertera is a mission-driven company focused on making environmentally responsible single-use products. Founded in 2006 on the belief that every culinary creation deserves a beautiful, sustainably crafted foundation. Vertera reclaims earthly discards like fallen leaves and tree scraps to design elegant, disposable dinnerware that elevates the look of food presentation. In short, a beautiful, disposable plate that can go with your food to a composting facility. 
The team from Verterra recently made a huge pivot with their factories and started producing masks, gloves, sanitizer, and other PPE that food businesses need to safely reopen. Learn more at Verterra.com. That's V-E-R-T-E-R-R-A.com. Welcome back to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. On today's show, Lucas Sin, chef and partner in Junza Kitchen, which began in the Yale Entrepreneurial Institute and opened its first location in New Haven, Connecticut in 2015. It has since grown to a multi-unit brand with three additional locations open in New York City. Here's the second half of the interview. What kind of missteps and issues did you run into at first once you got open and customers were coming through the doors? what unintended uh, problems occurred from being such young guys starting up a business and maybe not having the adequate background and experience in the real world that you may need to open up a fast casual restaurant? I mean, every problem imaginable, right? Like the crazy thing about being a chef of a restaurant is for some reason, you also need to know how to plumb. You need to know how to do HR. You need to know how to account. You need to know how to... um, clean the grease trap it's just like every it's totally unfair right? yeah why why did we have to become good at everything simultaneously and yeah and on top of that the crazy thing about the food system and i think about you know the, the name of the podcast is the line it's like you start working on the line and then through maybe i don't know between the ages of 16 and 30 if you're just working like through a regular progression you just learn how to become a really good cook and you make really good food but suddenly overnight you get promoted to become the executive chef of a restaurant and then you have to manage people you have to um, manage workplace culture you have to order you have to like write menus none of the this stuff of what you had any training in, right up until that point basically and so i'm um, just jumping there as the first starting point was was crazy and learning all these little things here and there um, i think were really important um and as you know I think the rule, generally speaking, is that when you um, uh, triple the amount of business you bring in, you have to redo all of your operations. So in the early days, every other day, you are redoing your operations. You're re-understanding your procedures. You are um, uh, configuring your equipment. Um, You're you're learning how to put together these more scalable uh, uh, training programs, for example, scaling up your recipes and that sort of thing, just step by step. I think um, I would say we've made mistakes every corner um, up until, and we still do every day, um, but we've learned really quickly from them. Um, and we have a very supportive network um, to, to sort of uh, show us which direction to move in. At this point, Junza has um, less than, uh, I think it's probably around 15 um, uh, employees in our support center. Uh, so our support center is what some people might call their headquarters. Um, and we've sort of like made specific departments really quite important early on, which is uh, unusual for a, a restaurant of our size. Business intelligence, for example, we do a lot of data analytics to understand how our products are performing, how our customers are responding, and also like which potential markets we might want to move in. Um, a lot of our, we want all, a lot of our decisions to be informed by uh, quantitative, um, but by data. Um, so that's important to us. Um, branding and design is all done at Genza in-house. Um, because we know how important it is to create a cohesive brand, even if you have so many different projects going at the same time. Um, so our graphic designers um, to, to our architects are all in-house as well. 
um, uh, not to mention HR accounting and operations and, and supply chain management. So all of these sort of like aspects, I think, are really important to the company. And it's important to keep that close to ourselves because we are aiming to be innovative. So we want to do a lot of that stuff ourselves. It's amazing what you just touched on because that really, there's going to be people listening that say that's the dream. You have uh, the ability to have these top level conversations with everyone who's super invested in the brand because each one of your uh, leadership, uh, e each part of your leadership is all in the same place and you all are executing with the, the common goal of doing the best for the business. And it doesn't have to be you know, outsourced to five different companies that then have to try to work harmoniously, which mm -hmm. is extremely difficult. But the the flip side of what you've just touched on is that you're you have large infrastructure, which is pretty expensive. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm wondering about how uh, that affects the overall growth of the company. Did you make the conscious decision at the beginning to have this uh, really solid infrastructure? and then have to raise additional money for it? Or does this just come out of the uh, existing revenue stream of the locations? Um, as a startup, you absolutely um, have a high burn rate that you need to um, sustain by, um, uh, uh, by looking for investment. I think the, the, it's kind of like a cycle of looking for investment and then using putting that investment to good use to to um, increase your revenue streams and, and diversify your revenue streams and start new projects for example and then after a while look for more investment uh, again um we decided to structure jones more like a almost like a tech startup right or, or rather more like a startup than a restaurant um, because we're learning from a lot of uh, companies like uh, sweetgreen um, dig in for example that were structuring it similarly um, because growth necessitates the mission or rather no, I'll put it the other way the mission necessitates growth right if you want to change what people think about Chinese food people need to eat Chinese food and if you want more people to eat Chinese food you need more stores you need more sort of uh, uh, places to, to for, for customers to purchase um, that food, and so for all these reasons, you you need a lot of uh, investment. And um, right now, um, Junza is uh, pre Series A, so we haven't actually officially went into our Series A yet. Um, so far, it's all angel investors and uh, family and friends, so to speak. Um, but um, uh, as we sort of as COVID starts to clear up and we have a better sense of what our outlook is for the next couple of years, I think um, that's when we'll start moving to Series A and looking at uh, more rapid expansion. Did you make the decision to open in New York because New Haven was doing exceptionally well and performing at a level at which you thought you could uh, compete in the world's most difficult restaurant market? Or... Um, were those decisions independent? Did you say New Haven's New Haven and we should give New York a shot and see if this will work in New York? I think New York was always a dream um, because we know we knew the type of impact we wanted to make. Um, and we knew that we wanted people to hear this story and eat this food. So we opened New Haven with the explicit uh, notion that we're going to get things right here so that we can move into New York. Um, the New Haven location, however consistently surprises me to this day um it's the same we've had the same manager there for five years um that restaurant 
uh, in New Haven has the lowest turnover rate of all I've ever heard of. Um, I believe last time I checked the industry standard, it's something around 17% uh, year over year of turnover of staff, which is to say 17% of staff remain in the fast casual world. Um, and and that, that's a number that, that, that I think I, we saw like a year or two ago. But New Haven for the longest time was posting 70%, as in with a team less than 10 people or around 10 people, like one or two would leave every year. And it's like a little family over there. Um, the food is, in my opinion, still great. It's an 800 square feet store, um, but they're still putting out um, food on a consistent basis. They were feeding uh, hundreds, if not thousands of essential workers during COVID. Um, and I'm, I'm always really proud of that store. Um, and me and my team go and visit there as frequently as we can. Um, but New Haven does hold a very dear place in my heart. Um, uh, speaking of New Haven, actually, uh, the, we, collaborations are so important to me as a chef to like get new ideas and whatnot. So in New Haven, we were doing collaborations like almost once a week, once every two weeks. And by collaborations, I meant people would come up to me, like bump into me at a bar or something and say, Hey, Lucas, do you like hot dogs? And I'm like, yeah, I love hot dogs. <laughs> and he's like, you should do a hot dog restaurant at your little Chinese restaurant. And I'm like, yeah, down, let's do it. Or hey, let's do a popcorn pop up or a fried chicken pop up. Hey, what if we just did like Mexican Chinese food and like just these like silly ideas would float around. And then I think distance dining, um, chef study, all these other projects like really stem from this early thinking that hey, we should just try things, like do whatever and use it as a neighborhood community pop up space. And I think New Haven was very much like that when when I was still living in New Haven with the team and uh, you know the the the, C, the, the um, chief of operations, the head of operations is the actual manager of the store we we're just doing silly events like that all the time that was so cool and um, i really miss that type of uh, that type of community that was slowly trying to build here in new york um but you know as you know everything moves a little bit um uh, quicker in new york and so there is less time to, to to play with events like that but anyway um yeah yeah i, I obviously miss it a lot Although it does seem that, you know, you do have you do have four stores, so you are a pretty good sized company, but you do also seem nimble and small and fun and you can do all these unique uh, events and kind of integrations that you come up with an idea and you can put them into effect pretty quickly. And uh, and I think that's sort of a, a testament to maybe having everyone in house at the same time that you can come up with an idea and you can implement it pretty quickly. Is there any worry that some of that personal identity that makes Junza special that as you continue to grow and you have to standardize more procedures and you start digging in harder and harder to that data and those analytics that you will not be able to keep some of that personality within the brand? Yeah, that's a great question. How do you grow a personality? Um, I think the way we kind of like keep it, the, the approach so far has been to um, uh, like carefully and intelligently segment right that into the different arms of our business. I think distance dining, for example, gives us an opportunity to tell a story when, uh, in a very deep way that we can't do at the fast casual at Junza Kitchen. I think eat nice day um, or a nice day Chinese which is our new Chinese-American concept that we're playing around with right now, um, or American-Chinese concept that we're playing around with right now, um, 
is even less uh, of a narrative communication when people get through the door. It's, a, it's about carefully segmenting when and where you want to display your personality um, and, and, and to engage your, your guests and the rest of the community in, in conversation. There's time for it and there's also time to, to not do that. So I think um, kind of, uh, and, and I'm lucky that I can be cook at a uh, restaurant group of this size and still be able to actually put food together that my customers can eat, right? That I still have a chance to come up with new menus on a regular basis and engage with chefs I want to engage with and, and learn about cuisine, um, which is very, um, which I count myself very, very fortunate for because you can imagine that a lot of, you know, culinary directors or chefs at fast casual restaurants don't get to do that anymore. And a lot of other chefs that I know um, kind of in this field uh, talk about how they aren't able to express themselves creatively anymore. It's kind of a bummer. So I'm very lucky to be able to do um, all of that. Is Nice Day a sort of a standalone concept that will one day have its own brick and mortar? Yeah. So right now it's running running as a pop-up at our Bleecker location on Wednesdays mm-hmm. to Sundays. Um, and we're playing around with the concept because uh, basically uh, the number of Chinese restaurants in the U.S. have dwindled, and that's even before COVID. That's, uh, we were tracking over the last two years, I believe, 16% of Chinese restaurants had closed in the New York area. 16%. That's out of nowhere. That's before any anti-Chinese sentiment. That's before any racism, before... Uh, you know, COVID's putting old businesses out of place. What that number looks like right now, I don't know for sure, but I imagine it's way worse. And the reason why these restaurants are closing, well, on one hand, it's a good thing, right? Chinese immigrants come to the U.S. uh, They open a restaurant. It's really hard work. The kids become doctors and lawyers. And so they don't have to run restaurants anymore. So obviously your chicken and broccoli place is going to close. That's kind Mm -hmm. of a good thing. They but don't the, want to do what their parents They don't want to do it. Yeah, because right. it sucks, right? It's like really hard work. <laughs> and um, their parents don't want them to do it either, right? Exactly. That's kind of was the whole point. Yeah. And on top of that, the cooks that work at this restaurant, they are uh, they, they were coming here because they didn't speak any English and they didn't know how to do anything. Um, they didn't have any skills that would be helpful if you don't speak English. So they end up in restaurants, right? Hey, I have a cousin. He's coming over from Fujian. Can he work at your Cantonese place, right? That's kind of the idea. Now, the people that come to the U.S. aren't coming to cook. They're coming to go to elite universities, right? Um, they're opening cool restaurants of their own. Uh, if any, and they're very, there are not a lot of cooks coming here because the economic opportunity in China is massive. So they're, they'd rather be cooking over there. Um, so, so this sort of like confluence of reasons causes uh, Chinese American food or American Chinese food to be on a little bit of a decline. Um, but what I was saying earlier... And then like hearkening back to what I was saying earlier, I'm kind of like excited about preserving that heritage or saying something or doing something about it. I think it's important to preserve that these like American Chinese sort of like traditions, but also to continue the conversation and like help evolve it as a new Chinese immigrant. Um, I don't believe in elevating American Chinese food. I don't believe in like, hey, fancy chef comes in and, you know, changes things up and, and makes it his own. I, I, uh, I'm more invested in trying to address the structural and supply side weaknesses of American Chinese food in the U.S., which, as mentioned, are like an aging population of people who work and staff and own these restaurants. Um, it has a very sort of small insular supply chain. 
um, which is pretty resistant to change. Um, and it's demographic um, uh, of, but, but despite all these challenges, the demographic of their customers is constantly growing. Chinese American food is the second most delivered food in the US after pizza. Like there's a huge market here. Um, but if restaurants are closing, I think smart people can do something about it. Is there any uh, brands that exist in the United States right now that if you were to be comparing Jenza to them, it would either be a compliment or would it make you cringe? I could name some, but I'm curious. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> uh, 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 so uh, I will just shout out and say Panda Express. Love Panda Express. I love and, Panda Express. And so is that a business that you look to and say they've done an excellent job as a business and or from a culinary standpoint, and that is someone that we look to um to learn from, as, yeah, yeah as, a, as a model or perhaps someone who's come before that we can do the job better than them? Absolutely. Uh, uh, in a lot of ways, yes. Um, I can't speak entirely to the business model because um, I think that would take too long, but I can tell you a story about a culinary side of things. Um, so right. have you, you've been to Panda Express, right? I have many, have had, many times. Right? Have you had honey <laughs> walnut shrimp? I have. It's an amazing dish. Like when it's good, it's really, really, really good, in my opinion. And the best I've ever had it was in like Terminal Two of JFK or whatever. And uh, this honey walnut shrimp, right? So I eat this honey walnut shrimp um, on the flight uh, or before a flight to China, and I go to China. I'm going to northern China to northeastern China to Liaoning to cook in a fancy restaurant um, for a month. And as I'm cooking there, it's like one of my last days there. And this guy says, hey, um, if you want to graduate from the, the proverbial cooking school, this is one of the test dishes. And he takes a really sort of beautiful prawn and he butterflies it and then he stamps it out until it's really quite thin. He breads it and then he deep fries it um, sort of lightly until it's like golden brown, like a little lighter than usual, like almost a little fluffy, right? And then he, and then in the wok, he adds a bit of uh, just granulated white sugar and a little bit of water and starts making a, a syrup. Um, and he's basically sort of uh, making, just before it becomes a caramel, before it starts turning brown, he tosses those uh, fried shrimps inside of this wok. Um, now, you know, woks go up to a thousand something degrees. They're super, super ridiculously hot. So they're notoriously difficult to control the temperature of. So, and you're trying to make a sugar. So you're actually cooking at a relatively low temperature. But what he's doing is he's tossing the uh, fried shrimps in sugar um, in the thinnest, thinnest, like crystal layer of sugar. He pulls the shrimp out and he just lets it cool for a couple of seconds so that the sugar can harden, which happens in a matter of like five to 10 seconds. What you end up having is a fried shrimp that is eternally crispy, like forever because of this sugar sort of like a, a, this sugar um, crust that's on outside of the fried battered shrimp. Now, this is a technique dish, which is to say it's an imperial dish. It's a dish that chefs in courts would have been cooking back in the day to impress emperors and politicians and whatnot. And Panda Express looked at this dish and said, let's serve this at 2,000 locations. And they did it within like a year or a year and a half or something. And that's insane, right? That they, they, can, they capture 
like obviously it's it's not like that all the time, right? This honey walnut shrimp isn't exactly like this fa- fine dining fancy version. But they looked at something like that and said, "Hey, let's 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 scale this up." And they absolutely are able to scale it up so that, in my opinion, I've had it so many times that I'm going to say 95% of the time, it's delicious. Um, now, Panda Express, on the other hand, some might argue it's a little outdated. And I totally agree with that because Panda Express was built in the 80s. Um, P.F. Chang's came shortly after in the 90s. And both of these restaurants, I think, are super, super important for the development of Chinese food in the U.S., um, uh, the founder of P.F. Chang's, Philip Chang, is a dear friend of mine, and he's also a mentor and actually an investor in Jinzi. And w- whenever we talk, we always talk about how since 1993, when P.F. Chang's was built, there hasn't really been another brand to represent Chinese food at scale. Um, and what this new brand needs to do is demonstrate that quantity doesn't mean diminishing of quality, that you can have both, that scalability can bring around good things as well. It can make for a more efficient food system and it can employ people in hopefully eventually like an uh, ethical and and intelligent way um, and and bring a huge amount of cultural change to a large amount of people. So that's kind of like, I would absolutely hope to say that one day I can really look at Jinzi and say, we really followed the footsteps of Panda Express and PF Changs and we're on our way to doing something good. A lot of what we were just talking about is actually about the kind of uh, mind-blowing consistency that can be achieved by large-scale, fast-casual brands across multiple <laughs> locations. And to me, that's something that always gets me so excited to think about. Like, if you eat a hamburger in South Dakota, or you eat it in Hong Kong, or you right. eat it in Australia, and it's a Burger King hamburger, it's going to be very, very, yeah. very similar. Um, and that always blows my mind. And so as someone who's in the fast casual space, uh, and and you have four locations, so it is easier to control consistency, but still, I assume, challenging. How do you internally develop a dish and then roll it out so that it is consistent across your locations. And as you look to expand, how do you hope to achieve uh, consistency across multiple mm-hmm. locations? Um, first of all, uh, the Chinese restaurants that already exist in the U.S. have achieved this with no need for an overarching headquarters, right? Like sesame chicken in Arkansas, exactly the same as uh, sesame chicken in Vermont. Yeah, how is that possible? How is that possible? Like, there's no trading manual. There's no PDF that these guys are, like, passing around. It's just so good and so satisfying and And, so similar. No matter what city. If you're in a city of 400 people, there's a Chinese restaurant, and it tastes the same as the one in the city of 700,000 people. Yeah, exactly. And it's amazing. And the way they did that is, is through a very complicated an intricate and insular network of passing ideas, recipes, and labor around, right? Like we have a uniquely scalable system that is entirely decentralized um, where, um, hey, I have a cousin coming over. He's going to work for you for a little bit. He's going to hate his job. Eventually, he's going to move to another place. And somehow, like over the last 150, 170 years or whatever it's been, like we have developed this Chinese food system that is that is in, in a lot of ways as impressive as any uh, McDonald's um, in terms of scalability and consistency of product without that overhead. And so I, I say, first of all, because that's something to learn from, 
right? To, to look at these systems and really try to study and understand them and say, what can we learn from the way you guys do things? Um, the similarities between these two restaurants on different sides of the country, how do we learn from this operation and these procedures to achieve consistency? Um, I, people have long, long shelved Chinese food away like that and just say, okay, you know, they, for whatever reason, <laughs> it's exactly the same, but nobody really has gone into like study it. And so I think studying and, and paying your debts and like understanding that first and foremost is, is a huge, um, I've learned so much about, um, uh, uh, how to standardize operations from looking at these 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 mom and pop shops. Um, second of all, um, I have a really wonderful team that really understands the need for scalability, and we've developed a um, a, a process that is very similar to design thinking. So um, we took a lot of pages out of like a, a, a designer's playbook, which is to say, every time we come up with a new sort of dish to put on the menu, we, it goes through this. Um, uh, uh, process of um, understanding a specific customer need, looking at quantitative data, getting customer profiles, understanding your target audience, and then uh, creating a new uh, uh, dish that's a product and testing it over and over again in in smaller circles and then bigger circles and then bigger circles and then having like a little bit of a rollout and maintenance phase of the product. Now, all of this is kind of a jumbled way to explain that we, I think it's really important that more uh, chefs and more restaurants start thinking about their um, dishes uh, less as uh, dishes or, or recipes, so to speak, more like products, right? That they need to be managed, that they have a certain life cycle. Um, there are quantitative measures for how well they're doing um, and when to change them or when not to change them and whatnot. And I'm not advocating for every restaurant having needing a business intelligence business intelligence department, but what I am advocating for is for us to start thinking about these things we're putting on the menu as things we're really trying to sell, um, and and understanding the metrics um, that will help us make those decisions about how to change something and whatnot. So I think relying on that sort of design thinking process. Um, plus uh, a lot of reference to this massive Chinese-American um, operations as a precedent, I think, is kind of how we're approaching a lot of the scalability question. It's a complete and total different mindset from the traditional restaurant experience from being in a Michelin kitchen where yeah. it's about a singular dish and plating it and right. you're going to do it 35 times tonight right. and it's going to be perfect. But what we're talking about is doing it 3,500 times during yeah. the lunch rush at multiple locations right. with different people. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the time, it's people who used to work at Forever 21 and Burger King. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's right. like, and like, it's like, how are you going to ask somebody like that to like, um, to taste something and be like, this needs a touch more salt, you know, um, or whatever it is. And like, I think when we're talking about, and it's such a fascinating question for me because a lot of people will say, you know what, like you are dumbing down, um, you're dumbing down cooking, right? You're, you're doing a disservice to the whole culinary industry by, um, uh, by, assume, by, by, by really simplifying things. But the, the hope is actually that you simplify things enough so that um, people don't have to do this in the long term, right? That you don't have to, like who enjoys just flipping burgers, right? Like who really genuinely just enjoys doing that all the time. But if you can figure out a procedure to make it more efficient, then you can free up more people, right? To, to think creatively and do things that they genuinely do enjoy, right? Interacting with customers, like managing other staff and that sort of thing, um, like programming equipment. And that's kind of like the goal, um, 
I think, um, for, for fast casual. And given that I think between COVID and the George Floyd protests and this larger kind of like food media reckoning, I would say that um, the restaurant industry has to take a good look at itself to see, um, to understand its vulnerabilities and see how from the operations and the procedure standpoint, we can really alleviate some of these difficulties um, and free up how, how we free up the most painful parts of running a restaurant. Yeah, for, for me, I think there's no greater compliment than someone saying that, oh, this recipe was so easy to execute. Uh, the recipe book that you have in the kitchen just yeah. explained it to me step by step. And, oh, these pickups are so easy. Anyone could do it. It's like, yes, yeah. that's yeah. the point. We're trying that's to make point. this super standardized so that, uh, yes, someone could step in. And with a couple hours training, they could have a, you know, a job that pays them well. And and hopefully where they're treated with respect and yeah, they don't have to do it for forever, but, uh, but it's a good job that they can do. Um, I do want to talk about the, the current, uh, state of the world. And just in the last six months, uh, as everything has just completely been upended, uh, you're, you're in the midst of a growing brand and you're in New York city and we've had, uh, extensive shutdowns and protests, and uh, it's been a, a crazy, tumultuous, emotional time for everyone. How have you, as one of the leaders of your company, uh, been dealing with it? And also, how were those first couple weeks and months after you may have had to shut down locations or, or alter some of your business, uh, especially in Manhattan? Um, I think... You're right that it was, it's been really difficult. Um, I am lucky to count myself as somebody who is rather optimistic. Um, and I think some of that optimism has paid off in the last couple of months because um, I think one thing we've committed to is we've doubled down our, on our commitment to our mission. We've just had to really decide to move quickly. Um, our restaurant, we decided not to close any of our restaurants and just to heighten a lot of our safety and hygiene measures, but also um, it was important for us to um, come up quickly with new revenue streams to support our staff. Um, early on, I think the most important thing to us was a share a meal program. So our share a meal program was a program we had um, started initially with the New York Presbyterian and then eventually other hospitals where we were donating a lot of meals to um, frontline workers um, that the, the, we were basically the, the great thing about that is we were um, soliciting donations that um, were feeding frontline workers but we were making sure that these hospitals uh, that these meals were being paid for that they weren't being made for free and that they were handed off in a hygiene and safe manner at the height of COVID in New York City so and and in New Haven so um, uh, just like re really quickly identifying like how, uh, what like so what we have inside of our kitchens that we might be able to use to make sure that everyone can continue to be paid, um, uh, and we can do something good for the community was um, really important. Once uh, it started, COVID started dying down a little. Um, uh, uh, we started. That's when we started distance dining, and that's what I meant when I saying when I was saying the we wanted to double down and commit to our mission, which is to change the way people think about Chinese food. We wanted to keep doing it. We wanted to continue cooking creatively, sort of despite the fact that everyone's quarantined and stuck at home. So what that required was us 
reimagining how food is going to be distributed um, and how to uh, sort of create a product and an experience that was engaging to people. Um, so uh, I think distance dining is how we ended up, how we settled on that um, by serving people three courses, uh, which is probably a lot more substantial than what they were cooking for themselves at home. Um, but it was also served cold and it had to be reheated. So it was interactive. There's the Instagram live component. Um, and on top of that, there were collaborations that we were doing sort of digitally with other chefs. Um, we would talk about recipes, share recipes over the phone or Zoom or whatever, and then execute them in our own separate kitchens and then deliver them um, to our customers, which meant that they could like eat and, and, and think about the ideas that two separate chefs were coming together to, to put forward. Um, and, and anyway, so in short, I think, um, uh, combining, uh, com like doubling down on that, that optimism for, 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 um, uh, and, and that need for cooking creatively while just being agile with how food is being distributed to your customers, I think really got us through a lot of, um, the more difficult times. This year. And so let's look to the future and, and let's look at it through a positive lens since, uh, I'm happy to hear that you're an optimist and, and so am I. So let's think of, a a best case scenario uh, for Junza and your team and yourself. What do you think the next 12 months, 16 months, 24 months will look like? I have, I don't even know what's happening next week. It's like, <laughs> um, I think, I think now is a more important time than ever to start addressing the, kind of like American Chinese uh, restaurant question. So I'd really like to see our operations expand on that front. Um, nice Day Chinese hopefully will do well and will get closer and closer to building a business model that we can start using to um, uh, help uh, American Chinese restaurants that are going out of business. Um, I'd like to also, uh, that that's one. Another is I'd really like to see how something like this in signing might be able to exist in a pandemic world um, permanently, right? Like um, I, I personally am very worried for so many of my friends who have full service restaurants who are doing outdoor dining right now. Most of them are killing it, but um, uh, outdoor dining is going to be over uh, in the winter. And, and uh, I'm worried that, eh, and I'd be interested in seeing how um, a program like this in dining might have more longevity and scalability uh, in times when people are going to retreat back into their apartments. Um, and, and the last thing is, I, I and this is a constant question, is to think a little bit more deeply and see how Jensen might be able in the future to assert itself as a thought leader in trying to right some of the injustices of the food system. Um, I, I'm very, very cautious of the vulnerabilities of uh, the food system, specifically um, climate change, but also how uh, the people who work in food are so often unfairly treated systematically, or not, I mean, systemically. So I think addressing those issues um, in a, a confident and, and, and consistent manner is something that I'd like to hold um, ourselves, um, is a standard that I'd like to hold ourselves to. Lucas, thanks so much for joining me and, and talking about your story and, and Junza and, of course, everything that may be coming in the future. Thank you so much for having me. 
um, it's a, it was a pleasure. You have four locations. One is in New Haven. Three are in New York. If you can direct people to uh, a website or an Instagram where they can find more information out about the brand and where they can uh, discover all the locations to visit. Yeah. Um, so you can follow Junzi Kitchen at J-U-N-Z-I Kitchen on Instagram and everywhere else. Um, our website is junzi.kitchen, J-U-N-Z-I dot kitchen. Um, check out uh, our new Chinese American concept, our American Chinese concept, um, Nice Day Chinese uh, at eatnicedaycom And my Instagram is at lucas.sin. Um, there's a little bit of home cooking on there. Uh, there's a little bit of history on there. Um, so yeah, DM me if any of you have any questions or want to chat or hang out. And they can find information also about the distance dining on the, on the Kitchen Instagram? website. Yep, and the Instagram. And that program is still ongoing? Yep. Amazing. Lucas, thanks again, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, and go check out Junza if you're in New Haven or New York City. The line is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners just like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.